0: Hi and welcome to Free Fall with Sar Thwaites. I'm your host, Sar, and today we are going to be reading a short story that I wrote a few years back called The Ghost. Now, this story follows three ghosts who sit together in a cathedral, and each of them tell their stories about how they died and their lives leading up to their deaths and what they did wrong, uh, what their tragic flaw was, and it covers themes like death, mortality, regret... Um, stuff like that. And before we start, i just like to say to any writers who may be listening, um, if you have any pieces of writing that you would like to share with people, feel free to reach out. My email is in my bio, and I would be happy to read some of your work on this podcast. So let's hop right into the story. A quick trigger warning for mentions of suicide and sexual assault. And I hope you guys enjoy my short story, The Ghost. The world is a cruel place. It's unforgiving to those who don't deserve it. Four figures sit among the rows of rotting pews in a cathedral. One of the figures, a man with an old face and youthful smile, flips a coin up in the air and catches it repeatedly. The repetition of the action makes it seem less like a conscious decision and rather an old habit. You're dead before you're even born, he says, grin sticking to his face like glue. Life's a bitch, ain't it? His curled lips brought about defined wrinkles, but his eyes shone bright in the peachy sunlight that wafted in through the stained-glass windows. Another figure, a boy leaning back in a nonchalant manner, his chin held high in arrogance, said to the old man, "'So, how'd it happen for you, then?' "'Well,' said the old man, his thick southern accent pushing through his teeth, "'I've escaped death many times, boy,' People tended to want my head decapitated and stuck to the top of a flagpole. But, though my legs didn't do much running, my mouth sure did. I could talk a sucker's head off in a millisecond. He chuckled heartily as he reminisced on his past persona. Nevertheless, I was a good man. I went to church every Sunday, married my darling Kate, had three beautiful children, Nathaniel, Noah, and Penelope. But hey, no man is exempt from a little sinning every now and then. My mouth sure didn't do jack shit against luck. I could talk all I wanted, but that don't mean my hand is going to win me the pot. I sure as hell tried. There was a bar down the road from my place. In the back of that bar, some old fellas of mine would gamble. Every night, I was making my way down to that bar, days, earnings, in hand. A bag of coins that I kept under a floorboard in my living room. And every night, I would lose. Then why'd you keep going? A woman with a sultry voice sat with her legs crossed and her elbow resting delicately on her knee, holding up her face. She radiated elegance and appeal. If I could have answered that question back then, I wouldn't be here right now. It's hard to describe the feeling of gambling. The risk, the rush, the anticipation. It was intoxicating. A drug that I had developed an addiction to. A mistress that kept drawing me in. The old man glanced at the woman. But I suppose my mouth did help me some. I was always in debt, but I was able to convince the other fellows that I would have their money soon. I never did. Eventually, my habits got old alongside me, and when my dearest Kate passed, I knew she would want me to stay with the kids. As time went by, I outlived the men I owed money to. Their sons and nephews took their place, and the sound of smacking gums and creaking bones didn't appeal to them any more. They just saw me as some old man that wasted his life away. When my eldest son, Nathaniel, came of age, he became their target of interest, as I was borderline senile, spending my days at the house. They harassed him every day, and the guilt began to wash over me. I had brought this upon him. Between my body not fostering any muscle to work any more, and Nathaniel and Noah working menial jobs, our chances of paying back the debt was slim to none. So I did the only thing I knew how. Run my mouth. I told Nathaniel to go down to the bar, where the gambling round the back was still going on, and go all in and offer up my Penelope as the winning trophy. You sold your daughter to pay off debt? The boy's face contorted into something of disgust and shock. Times were different back then, son, and I took that regret to my grave. His gaze became far off for a moment before returning to the story. Anyways, the offer was picked up immediately. Penelope was a highly sought-after fawn to the young men of the town. And, uh, well, my lack of luck must have run in the family, because Nathaniel returned to the house with his head hung low and a group of men trailing behind him. I'm sorry, Pa, he said to me. The men carried guns. Their smug smiles were sickening, like dogs ready to rip apart some dead carcass. Penelope came out from the kitchen to see what the commotion was, and that's when she realized. She darted to the back of the house, hoping to get out from the back door, but the damn thing always gets jammed when it's damp outside. The men followed her, laughing and hollering, and I couldn't stand it no more. I mustered up any remaining energy I had left and bolted to my Penelope. She was crying there on the floor, so I covered her with my body. I saw the men give each other a look. Then one of them took out his pistol. I tried to plead with him. No, please. Give us a few more weeks, days even, and we'll come up with your money, I promise. But the boy just looked down at me and tilted his head. We don't give two shits about the money no more, Pops, he said. We'd rather take a more valuable prize. His eyes went behind me to my daughter cowering with her back against that goddamn door. The rage just boiled up inside me, and I snapped. I lunged at him. No gun, no blade, just my fists. He fired a single shot into my chest, and that's when I saw myself laying there on the ground in front of me. A single shot, and it was all over. Like I said, the world is a cruel place. My Penelope, didn't deserve that fate. "'You can't blame the world for your faults, old man,' the woman said. "'You're the one that threw the carcass to the dogs in the first place.' "'I've repented, don't you worry, sugar. "'I don't believe it counts if you're dead,' the boy remarked. "'Well, if you're all such angels, tell me. "'What perfect lives did y'all lead? "'Cause I can tell you right now that that one over there "'don't look like the good and honest type.' "'He gestured to the fourth figure.' who laid across one of the pews, seemingly sleeping. The figure wore all black, covering their features with the hood pulled up to block out the sunlight as they napped. If you've been dead for this long, I'm surprised you haven't learned to mind your business, Pops, said the boy. The old man glared at him. Go on, then. Tell us how you kicked the bucket. Why do you deserve to know? To be fair, the woman chimed in, there's really no point in keeping secrets anymore, is there? We're all dead anyway what right do we have to cast judgment? The old man and the boy glanced at each other. Fine, the boy said. I'll tell you. The woman adjusted herself in her chair, preparing for another lengthy anecdote. I was murdered by my best friend. The other two sat, waiting for an extended explanation, but none came. And? The old man attempted to extract more information. And nothing. It wasn't his fault. It was just a big misunderstanding. Boy shifted his gaze towards the stained glass windows of the church, his dark brown eyes glistening like honey. But he'll never know that. He'll only remember me as, well, as the asshole that made his brother hang himself. My memory lives on through him. How did such a big misunderstanding take place? The woman asked. The boy sighed. I had fallen in love. With his brother. Corey. We went to school together, and he was a senior when I was a junior. Corey shared the most beautiful smile with his brother. They were very similar, actually, their looks and mannerisms. We were all really close, but Corey and I were closer than his brother knew. I was an athlete back then, popular too, but I didn't really care about all that. Home life wasn't great, so I spent most of my time at Corey's house after school. Eventually, I was offered an early scholarship to some uptown state university near my school. I wasn't the best at school, but it never really mattered, because I could play football like no one's business. Anyways, one day, I was hanging at Corey's house, right? And his brother was busy, out with his girlfriend. We were in Corey's room in the middle of... The boy turns to stare at the others for a moment. Certain activities when his dad gets home. We didn't hear him, but he sure heard us. He came storming up the stairs and kicked the door open. Not my proudest moment, of course. Next thing I know, his dad's talking about telling the entire town that I was a homosexual bastard and accused me of turning his son gay. Normally, I wouldn't have cared about that kind of thing, but I had a scholarship that I had to keep, and I couldn't risk losing my only opportunity to escape my family back home. Cory did his best to convince his dad to keep it a secret, but no dice. So I was kicked out of the house and banned from ever coming back. The next day, Cory came to school with a black eye and a busted lip. His dad had beat him after I left. So he killed himself out of guilt? The woman asked. No. The boy looked down. He knew how much I had to lose, so he sacrificed himself for me. He started a rumor, about himself being gay, said his dad would have other things to worry about than me. The rumor spread like wildfire throughout the town, and before long, school had become Corey's own personal hell. His face was constantly riddled with bruises, but he never stopped smiling at me. Whenever he saw me, it's like the rest of the world melted away. His smile made me realize just how far he would go for me. But I was always too weak to do anything. What I said about not caring if I was popular, I lied. I was faced with the decision every single day, protect him or me. And every day, I chose myself. Not without guilt, of course. The inner conflict was damn near unbearable, but it was nothing compared to his struggle. He never even expected me to defend him, either. He didn't care that I was being selfish, as long as I was okay. Everywhere he went, he was met with violence and hatred. He never found a sanctuary of any kind. Eventually, the opinions of everyone else got to him. He couldn't take it any longer. I remember the day it happened. He was smiling all day at school. Regardless of any slur or insult that was thrown his way, he just looked at them and smiled. It wasn't his usual smile, though. It was the unsettling grin of a man that had been pushed to his limit. When he looked at me, his hollow eyes gained life again. His warm smile returned and he hugged me, right there in the middle of the hallway. People turned to look, but he didn't let go. That night, his dad was knocking at my door. He told me what happened and said to get out of town. Said that he was going to hunt me down with a group of men at midnight, and he thought it only fair to warn me. So I packed my stuff and ran. My heart burned as I ran through the streets, but I didn't stop until I got to the church. He gestured around at their surroundings. I was never too religious, but my mom always pushed me to go to Sunday service. I never did. I only came here because I wanted to apologize before I ran away. Little did I know that Cory's brother, my best friend, had seen me and followed me into the church with a gun. When he saw me, he bursted out crying as he aimed the gun. How could you? he screamed. You fucking killed him. I tried to explain myself, but he cut me off. You pushed him to the edge. I saw how you treated him. You never even looked at him, laughing at the jokes that they made at his expense. You watched as they tore him apart. I expected nothing less from them, but you? I thought you were better. I hope you're happy with yourself. At that moment, I knew there was nothing I could say to make him understand. So I prayed to God that I might be able to join Corey when I die. Then, one shot. Bang. And I was gone. The woman and the old man looked at each other. But he was right, the woman said. You were part of the reason he killed himself. If you had defended him, then he might not have done it. The boy turned around to look at her. Then what was the point of his sacrifice? If he gave up his life for me, then where would be the logic in disregarding his decision by drowning alongside him? I loved him, I truly did, but I wanted to live my life. Is that so bad? The old man shrugged. It seems like we're all flawed in some way. He turned to the woman. What about you, sweets? What sins did you commit that led you here? I wouldn't assume that I'm the same as you two. Men are hardwired to commit atrocities, but women are different. All we ever do is pursue love. It's the men that make that so difficult. What's your story, then? The boy inquired. You have to have some sort of tragic flaw. Well, I was a singer at Vincent's, a downtown place. The place was always busy thanks to me. People would come from all across the city to listen to me. The bar would be flooded with men hoping to meet me after my shift. I never accepted their offers. My boyfriend was the bartender, Milo. He was the sweetest. Handsome, kind, gentle, passionate. He was perfect, really. But he came with some baggage. His brother, Weston, was a psycho. When Milo introduced us when we first started dating, he took an odd interest in me. He asked me questions that a future brother-in-law shouldn't be asking, you know. He was always making nasty comments about my figure, claiming that they were compliments. I had been a woman long enough to know when a man was obsessed with me, and he certainly was. I told Milo that I was uncomfortable around him, and he talked to him about it. Weston got really violent and sporadic, and what had started as an uncomfortable interest became a genuine obsession. Milo promised me that he would cut contacts with him, but he already knew where I worked. He came into the bar one day, already drunk, and started begging for me to elope with him while I was on stage. The bouncer had to drag him out, kicking and screaming. He was banned from Vincent's, but he was always loitering outside near my car. This was before Milo and I moved in together. He was relentless. Every night, please, you know I can treat you better than him. You deserve someone better. He's a fucking bum. You'll regret getting with him, I promise. He was never violent towards me, though. Not until Milo proposed. The woman adopted an adoring gaze and her eyes glinted with reminiscent love. This gaze was very shortly followed by a flash of darkness, a shadow that overtook her features. We moved in together, and every chance he got, Weston showed up at our door, drunk and manic. His slurred begging eventually turned to barbaric yelling and slamming his body against the door. Eventually, he would get tired and leave, but some nights... Some nights it wasn't that easy to get rid of him. One night, it rained pretty heavily, and our apartment had a mold problem. I guess that detail seemed pretty minor at the time, but after years of contemplating the events of that night, I can safely say that it played a significant role. Anyways, Weston was at it again, banging against the door. This night he was particularly rowdy, so Milo told me to go into the bedroom and lock the door while he called the police. Our area was pretty bad to begin with, so the cops were more or less useless, but what else were we supposed to do, you know? So I go into the bedroom and lock the door, and Milo yells to his brother, If you don't leave, I'm gonna have to call the cops. Then, the banging stopped. There were no footsteps retreating, just silence. Milo went over to the door to look through the peephole, but before he could see that his brother was still there, one last thud came from behind the door. Or. What used to be the door, anyway? That son of a bitch had broken the door down, pushing Milo onto the floor. Weston started threatening him with a knife from our kitchen, and that's when I did what all loving women would do for their men. I grabbed the gun from Milo's nightstand and unlocked the door. The old man laughed a deep, hearty chuckle. That's a striking image, ain't it? A girl like you handling a handgun? I was a good shot. The woman retorted. Anyways, when Weston saw me with the gun, he smiled. It was a creepy, haunting smile that makes you wonder when he became so deranged. But the knife didn't move from Milo's throat. If I shot, he slashed. My hand was shaking from the fear and adrenaline, and seeing that fucking smile was making me want to vomit. Then, Milo looked at me, and his eyes were desperate. He was crying, and I knew he wanted it to be over. I wanted it to be over, too. So I made my decision. I shot. He slashed. The woman pursed her lips and looked away shamefully, wiping a tear from her watery eyes. The police came and saw two men dead and one survivor, me. I was put on death row, and after several years, I was executed. So you do have a tragic flaw, the boy said after a few respectful moments of silence. Love. Staying with him no matter what. You could have left whenever you wanted. Moved to a new city and not bothered with that family ever again. But you stayed. Why? That's what love is, kid. When you feel that much love for another person, no one else matters. It's just you and them alone in the world. You wouldn't know anything about that, would you? boy looked down in shame. These stories are all well and good, said the old man. But isn't anybody else curious about our old pal over there? He nodded to the figure napping on the pews. Yeah, what's his deal? The boy chimed. The figure stirred awake and sat up, revealing a young man with sharp features and tired eyes. He yawned. I would suggest you mind your business. I don't have a tragic story to contribute, I'm afraid, he said groggily. "'Besides, my life doesn't concern anyone, let alone you.' "'No need to be rude,' the woman sneered. "'Just then, footsteps echoed through the cathedral "'as a man dressed in a cassock came down the aisle. "'The priest stopped at the pew where the young man sat. "'Matthew,' he said. "'Who were you talking to just now?' "'Myself,' the young man replied. "'The priest chuckled. Well, service starts in an hour, so help me set everything up. Yes, sir, he mumbled as he rose from his seat. The old man, the boy, and the woman looked on in awe as the realization of the peculiar situation dawned on them. As they had shared their lives with others who they assumed to be lost souls as well, they had been entertaining the ears of a man who still had his entire life to live. He still had mistakes to make, Lives to change, people to love. He hadn't yet uncovered his tragic flaw. His fate was left unsealed, eternity remained incomprehensible, and his opportunities endless. He possessed the curse of life that their souls still craved so deeply, and yet, here he was, talking to ghosts. So that concludes the read-through for the story The Ghost. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Now I'd like to talk a little bit about the writing process and kind of um, how I come up with the characters and the plot surrounding it. So this story was originally the result of a writing challenge. At the school that I went to, there was a literary magazine that would send out these this list of prompts that writers could use for their stories And one of the prompts was just the word ghost, and I took that and ran with it. I wanted to have three different stories, like three different completely disconnected stories that had nothing to do with each other, with only one connecting factor. Um, And I think that was a very subtle factor. It was the setting. So all these stories, each of uh, the characters' lives took place in the same area, in the same town, or city, if uh, you're the woman. Um, but the old man, his story was around the 1860s, I want to say, uh, sort of near the gold rush where it was kind of like a western vibe and, you know, uh, very traditional views on things. Um That's why he says, you know, times were different back then uh, when the boy, you know, asked him about selling his daughter to pay off debt. The woman was around the 1920s. So it's very, I wanted to reflect that in just the setting of her story, which was Vincent's, uh, the quote unquote downtown place where she worked as a singer and Milo was the bartender. And I felt like that kind of just brought the feeling of the 1920s. To her story. Then the boy was the 1950s. I honestly couldn't tell you why. I just thought of Greece <laughs> when I was um, writing the boy's story. I just pictured it in my head: the boy wearing a varsity jacket because he's a football player, and just the intolerance surrounding that kind of environment, and like the toxic masculinity that would eventually be the downfall of the boy. And the reason I chose a stagnant setting uh, was to illustrate the idea of, you know, life goes on, people make mistakes, and time continues, and things change, and some things don't, like the town that they were in. So I hope that kind of was brought through, or was communicated uh, through these stories. So now I want to dive a little bit into these characters, because at the core of all these stories is uh, these characters and who they were and who they are now, um, if they have even changed. And first of all, for the old man, I kind of wrote him as just this oblivious character who blames the universe for his mistakes and never really held himself accountable for the mistakes that he made during his lifetime. And um, he's kind of brought back down to earth at one point after his story when, you know, the boy and the woman are kind of like, hey, no, this was your fault. Like, it's your fault that all this happened. The others hold him accountable for his mistakes, which is something that he didn't really experience, um, during his lifetime. But even with this realization that he is in the wrong, he still kind of refuses to take responsibility um, and I kind of showed this in a throwaway joke that he made, which was uh, when the woman, you know, tries to tell him that, you know, he made the mistake and he goes, well, I've repented. Don't you worry. Um, and then the boy goes, I don't think it counts if you're dead. So it's kind of saying that even in death after his life, he's still not able to grasp the concept of he could have been better and he could have Prevented his daughter from being sold off, and that he is responsible for all the bad luck that has occurred throughout his lifetime. You know, it wasn't it wasn't his love for gambling. It wasn't um, the universe. It was just him, and that's kind of a recurring theme that you would see in the story: is some sort of love versus self preservation or survival um in this case it was self-preservation but the old man's love for gambling it's kind of this like irresistible factor of his being that he just can't overcome this innate greed that he has and as a result he can't overcome his gambling addiction and he even you know puts his greed and his self above his own family and his own daughter which is why he tells uh, Nathaniel his son to sell off Penelope, and I do wish more than anything that I could do a good Southern accent so that I can get across the idea of you know who he was supposed to be, who the old man really was, and um, I actually have adapted this story into a play. And so maybe sometime in the future, um, in a future episode, I will bring on some friends of mine and somebody who can actually do a southern accent because I sure as hell can't. And I will finally be able to share the essence of the old man. Next up is the boy. Um, I think that the boy is probably the most nuanced character of the entire story because of his actions and trying to determine whether he was really wrong for what he did. He represents the battle between self-preservation and love and you know he says that he really did love Corey but he wanted to live his own life and that is something that I found really interesting when I was writing it. The idea of Loving someone, but not putting them above yourself. And, you know, I asked the question was he really wrong for what he did? Was he really wrong for not wanting to, as he said, drown alongside Corey? A lot of people would say, yeah, he was wrong. A lot of people would make the argument that, at least in a literary sense, saying that he didn't want to undermine Corey's sacrifice was a a sign that he didn't really love Corey. But I would argue the opposite because in reality, you know, saying that you would do something like defend your loved one um, is a lot different than actually doing it, especially in the time that the boy was alive in the 1950s, you know, coming out and saying that you're gay is an incredibly, you know, difficult thing to do even in today's time, so I couldn't even imagine doing it back then. Coming from a literary sense and a storytelling sense, a lot of people would expect this kind of uh, pure and holistic view of what love is, but in reality, love comes in many different forms and many different uh, levels, I would say, because you know, you can love someone and also value your own life and value yourself above them, which I don't think is inherently wrong. But if you're reading a book and it's a romance and somebody does something similar to what the boy did, then it's kind of kind of ruins the entire story, doesn't it? It kind of ruins this illusion that love is... This incredibly pure and powerful thing. And to anyone who struggles with names and remembering names, I'm so sorry. I promise the other episodes are not going to be like this, but I did choose to not give most of the characters names uh, for a very simple reason. I didn't want to give most of them names because the ghosts, at least, were these very nebulous characters. You know, they could be anyone, and they weren't really special in their lives, you know. What happened during their lifetime is not unique. And it's something that probably happened thousands of times throughout the course of history. And will probably happen millions of times after um, their deaths. I didn't want to give them an identity that, you know, people could connect these stories. Because they are not these stories. These stories are about humanity and how we deal in these situations, but the identities of these ghosts have nothing to do with these stories that they are involved in and these lives that they lived. Um, I'm not sure if that makes too much sense, but I wanted to disconnect their identities from their past and their past actions. And the only character that is given a name that is not involved in Uh, the stories that the ghosts are telling is Matthew. And I'll get more into Matthew later, but the reason that he has a name is because he is this very unique person. You know, he has the ability to talk to ghosts and hear ghosts, and that kind of sets him apart from the rest of humanity. And so he has this unique identity, and that's something that I wanted to really get at is identity is what makes a person unique. And all these vague stories that the ghosts tell, they do not merit an identity, if that makes sense. But Matthew, he has a special ability and it sets him apart. It makes him unique. And that is what merits an identity. So for the woman, um, I've realized something that I didn't intentionally write into the story, and I didn't realize it until I reread the story prior to recording this podcast. The story tends to focus a lot on the flaws of men. Um, the woman is a character that, in her story, she doesn't really do anything wrong. She um, is put in this position of feeling unsafe and, you know, being threatened by Weston, and she kills Weston out of self-defense and she understands that killing Weston also results in the death of Milo but she takes that risk and she takes that chance in order to um, put Milo out of his misery and save herself. So she doesn't really do anything morally wrong as opposed to the other two characters where an argument could be made for the boy that he did something wrong and the old man obviously did something wrong. The story unintentionally highlighted flaws of the male characters, but i that wasn't really an intentional element that I added into the story. It just kind of came out that way. So that was just an aspect of the story that I noticed when I was reading this just before recording this episode. But the woman's story also covers a very common theme that we see in these... Um, In these anecdotes that kind of threads them all together and that's the theme of love versus self. Um, In the old man's story, it's love for his children versus his self-absorbed greed um, and love for gambling. For the boy, it's his love for Cory versus self-preservation. And for the woman, it's love for Milo versus just survival and valuing her life and her future. And she does choose survival in the end. She kills Weston and Weston kills Milo. But it is kind of an ironic ending because the woman is the only character within these three ghosts that is not killed directly. You could say that Weston was responsible for her death, but in reality, Her death is a result of her being blamed for a crime that she didn't commit, and that's kind of what sets her apart from the other two characters, is that they made mistakes and they were killed for it. She didn't make a mistake and she was still killed for it. In fact, she was executed, which I think is a little bit more impactful because it's Like, the society around her is telling her that it doesn't matter that she didn't make a mistake or that she wasn't responsible for what occurred, that she's still somehow at fault or that she needs to take on the blame because no one else will. One thing that was pretty interesting about how the woman's story played out is that to an observer or a bystander, Her killing Weston may have seemed like an act of self-preservation and putting herself above Milo. However, in her mind, that was an act of love. You know, in the story as she's telling it, she makes a note that she saw in Milo's eyes that he wanted it to be over. And so to her, killing Weston was like doing Milo a favor or like putting him out of his misery so as a result she doesn't regret what she did and I think that that comes through after she's done telling her story and uh, she you know tells the boy she says that's what love does to a person it's just you and this other person in the world alone and no one else matters and which is something that the boy didn't Understand or didn't feel for Corey. So, the last character I'm going to talk about is Matthew. And originally, Matthew was supposed to be a much bigger part of the story. Originally, the um, premise of the story itself was supposed to be focusing on Matthew or a character that has the ability to talk to ghosts. And I really wanted to stick with that, but as I started writing, I realized that that's not really what I wanted to focus on at the story's core. And so I ended up making Matthew kind of this afterthought and um, kind of using him to drive home the point of the story as a whole, or one of the points at least, which was being an observer versus being a participant. And you see this in... The ghost stories, where each of the characters interact with the world around them, either as a participant or an observer. For the old man, he was an active participant, he was the one gambling, he was the one that suggested that they sell Penelope. The boy, on the other hand, was an observer. It was his inaction that led to his downfall and led to Corey's death. The woman was a participant, however, she was more reactive than the old man, whereas the old man was very direct in, you know, he's the cause for this chain of events. The woman was more so, she was reacting to those around her. Um, you know, Weston, she was reacting to his advances and that led to her making these decisions, and doing certain things that made her an active participant in her story. Matthew, on the other hand, is a complete observer, which is why the story is called The Ghost in the first place. You might have been thinking, why wasn't the story called The Ghosts, plural? And that's because Matthew is the real ghost of the story. He's an observer, and he doesn't participate in the story at all he's kind of just this person off in the corner that listens and hears but doesn't act, and in the end, Matthew is this representation of being a perpetual observer and always being that person in the corner listening to others and taking in information and learning, but never really doing and that's why the ghosts are so flabbergasted at the end when they find out that Matthew is still alive. You know, he has his entire life to live. He has mistakes to make. And yet here he is listening to these stories that, you know, are all about other people's lives and what other people did, the mistakes that other people made. And it just strikes them as odd. It's unnatural in a sense, because when you're living your life, you're not thinking about how you're going to reminisce about it after death. You're thinking about doing things in the moment. And Matthew, on the other hand, is very much not in that mindset. He's very um, observant, and that's exactly what he represents. I hope all that rambling and ranting didn't bore anyone too much. But thank you so much for listening to this episode of Freefall. And again, to any writers out there, if you have any pieces of writing that you'd like to share, feel free to email me, and I would happily present your writing here on the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Sarth Waits, and this is the Free Fall Podcast. See you again next time.